0: Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This show uh, largely focuses around the marking of 500,000 people who have died from COVID-19 and some general thoughts about how how American society and the world has coped with this pandemic and with the loss that has accompanied it. And that nicely segued into the second thing we want to discuss, which was Lent. This is the Christian season that we're in. It begins roughly at Ash Wednesday and goes uh, through to Easter. Towards the end of the show, I discuss the journey of a friend of mine. And I want you to know that I did so with the permission of this friend. You'll notice that in the midst of discussing the journey of this person, I change the pronouns I'm using from she and her to they and them, and I'm doing that in order to honor the transformation that has taken place for this person, though I think I do it somewhat inelegantly. Uh, I use she and her for my friend when I'm talking about her journey before her transformation, and then I switch to they and them to speak about uh, this person in the present tense this person is extremely courageous and I admire them very much. So you had something from our
1: from a previous podcast that you wanted to address here at the beginning. Right. I kind of in passing really and I mean I remember realizing it later as we were going on that I had said this and I really didn't do anything else with it. I just kind of threw it out there. And honestly, I wasn't even meaning to make it um, something that was central or would uh, jump out at any of our listeners. But I, I talked about the sermon I preached that you and Tony, my brother, helped me write at the Crystal Cathedral, in which I, I was making, part of the point I was making is that Jesus is a, was a racist too, like the rest of us, and I just kind of left that lie, and thankfully, and and really uh, in a kind fashion, respectfully, and I think we can do this. By the way, folks, we actually can be kind and and uh, respectful in asking questions and pushing back on things that we hear that are alarming to us. Um, I had a couple of friends from uh, a church I served uh, in Portage, Southridge Church. Who just sent me a wonderful message saying, Hey Marlon, explain yourself. Exclamation mark. And it was uh it was wonderfully well done. And so I wrote a blog about it. And if you go to marlonvist.com, you'll see it entitled, Was Jesus a Racist? And I I I explained what I was trying to say when I made that comment. And uh, I was using Matthew fifteen and John seven Mark where, Mark seven, thank you. Where there's a story about a woman, Jesus is in Tyre and Sidon, and there's a woman who has a daughter who's tormented, and she's Canaanite, which is a which ought to really uh, be a a uh, kind of a, a a point of saying Canaanite, you know, Syrophoenician, Canaanite in Matthew, Syrophoenician and Mark, right, and. And Jesus talks about um, being there only for the lost sheep of Israel. And then he says to her, uh, I'm not going to take the children's food and feed it to dogs, which is an extremely derogatory term in the Middle East. Today, still dog, calling somebody a dog. And um, I, I made the point in there is that Jesus upbringing this is I'm going to just say a couple of more things and then you can go to the blog if you want to read more Marlinvist.com but Jesus was raised in a subtler town with people who would have looked on the Gentiles with disdain and Jesus grew up believing that Jewish people were better than these foreigners, the Roman soldiers and the Greeks in the Greek towns and you hear that. In Jesus' own words, if you read carefully, he talks about the Gentiles lording it over them. Don't be like the Gentiles. And so I make the point that Jesus was raised like me in a small town, and undoubtedly he was raised with racist views, and those views come out in this story. Now, what he does with it, how he overcomes it, that's the key to the story, I think, and the key for us.
0: Yeah, you said he's raised in a settler town, and for anybody who knows modern Israel, that's going to be confusing.
1: Well, because it was a town very much like the settlements, the what we call the uh, ideological, ideological settlers, not the uh, economic settlers. The one there are there are most Jews in Israel who settle in the settlements do it because it's a cheap place to live and it's a great place to live. These are towns in the West Bank, in Palestinian territory. But there are are ideological settlers who believe that they are there by divine right. The Bible says they're to be there, and they would look upon, and I think many Jews would look upon the the Palestinians as lesser than, Uh, same as many of us white people look at people of color as lesser than. And Jesus would have been raised in a community exactly like that. Nazareth was settled during the Hasmonean period, so 2nd century BCE. It was an effort to re-Judaize the Galilee, and it was extremely successful. The Greeks who came there during Alexander the Great were driven out east of the Jordan on the eastern plain, the Decapolis, ten cities. But most of northern Galilee during the time of Jesus would have been Jewish, and these settlers, they were ideological settlers. They were a hardcore, tough people who would have looked with disdain on the foreigners around them. And Jesus was raised in that environment. So he caught that just the same way that I did in my little town.
0: Yep. Good stuff. Part of what just happened yesterday that I want to talk a little bit about is that we reached – the milestone, the grim milestone of 500,000 people dead from COVID 19 in the country. Yeah, I just wanted us to reflect on that a little bit. What's the year been like? Gosh, uh, Black Lives Matter happened in the last year during COVID. Um, I feel like there was something else big that happened. Well, I guess the election is probably what I'm thinking of during January 6th. January 6th. Man. That's a lot of stuff. And in the midst of that, 500,000 people died and many, many others were hospitalized. Um,
1: Well, I appreciated the fact that Joe Biden took time last night to address it. 500,071 was the number that he quoted in his address. And uh, so I appreciated that he was acknowledging the milestone. He made the point that these are more more lost five hundred and some thousand is more than we lost in World War One, World War two and Vietnam combined and that's a huge in one year one year in one year. just think of how long world war one World War two went on at least four years, mm-hmm. and Vietnam went on for nine or ten yep. I mean you know, and this is one year we lost five hundred thousand Americans. And I think he wanted us in in its lent what a what a time to reflect on death. I mean, yeah. I think that's where you want to go yeah eventually what what a what why we're starting with this is what a time to reflect on loss and death and what this all means. I mean, how we handle the pandemic. there's some repentance that ought to be taking place in and I'm not talking about the trump administration but the way we fought over whether to wear masks or not yeah the way we fought about whether to be in person at worship or in other Mm -hmm. places or not i mean for crying out loud people were dying and we were fighting over whether to do this little thing yeah we didn't
0: unfortunately i mean if you think about the patriotism that often often accompanies war it didn't feel like we got that same patriotism around this thing that in a sense, it should have been easier, this one, because we were all affected almost not not equally in terms of loss, but in terms of having to struggle through it. I mean, I realized some people lost jobs, some people didn't, but everybody had to somewhat dramatically change their lifestyle, and it, it was um, difficult in different ways for everyone, and it was a, a real opportunity for us to come together, and I don't want to say it that that didn't happen at all. Cause there were, I mean, I have ways personally that I've, I've seen people um, come together and help each other. And I feel like sometimes I feel like the mass controversy was over, overplayed because with the internet and social media, you see all the bad actors, right? right? All their stuff gets amplified. I mean, most of the time I went out, people were wearing masks Absolutely. once 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 we understood that mask wearing was important how we didn't get how that one got screwed up I, I never quite understand. it should have been obvious that masks should have been the first thing that happened instead we were incessantly washing our hands right <laughs> and it turns out that that kind of transmission wasn't the main way but i want to acknowledge that there wasn't the kind of coming together that i would have hoped for in in our country i think in part that's sort of impossible right now with the divisions we have in our country um, politically. Uh, I don't know, though. But there was a lot of yeah. there was a lot of good that did happen. It's just that we the good didn't get amplified as much, and that's partly due to the fact that our leadership for for most of this was a really divisive type of leadership. I, it would have been interesting to see what it would have been like under a more unifying presence, or at least somebody desiring that as our sort of national leader. I think I do think it would have made a difference. It would have felt differently than it did, and I think that's for me that's the biggest the biggest loss in all of this besides the human loss of life because I never want to downplay that ever you know when this is all we know that we got is this life it's all we know right there might be something beyond this right there might be, but right. there might not be right and um so when somebody. Is gone, right? It's a a big deal, right? Um, and uh, I guess I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth about it. There's a part of me that feels like the divisions were so evident, but then there's a part of me that wants to not let that be the whole story because it wasn't the whole story. There was also a lot of kindness and a lot of goodness and a lot of people supporting just causes. So,
1: well, I I saw our church that I'm a part of, I saw some lay leadership that was really exemplary. I mean, who stepped up to help people who were losing their homes stay in their homes. You know, I'm proud of many of the things that we did there. Our, we We just, we raised a ton of money to help people stay in their homes, and we're still giving money for that. We had a uh, a gift we gave, just we approved last night. Go to uh, Good Samaritan Center, and we got uh, an email back early this morning. We just let them know it was coming. We got an email back from the director there early this morning, saying you we had we have a young, we have a woman who's in Holland Hospital and she's dying. She has a husband and two kids, and they're about to be evicted this 6800 dollars you just gave is going to keep them in their home for another 3 months. And so I that's the kind of thing that I think did happen that can go under the radar what we missed and I and I'm really surprised by this because when this started one of the things I said over and over again to to family mostly but hey this is going to bring us together. Mm. I think this this might be something that's going to unite the whole world, right? And it didn't do that at all. I mean, not at all. I just contradict. It didn't do that like it could have, mm-hmm. and I think that's the missed opportunity we had. Is there and and there again, where was, I'm super disappointed with the church because the church got involved in this faith over fear. Yeah, stuff you know and they we became the divisive a- agency mm-hmm. the uh, white evangelical church that's that's the church that i'm the, the more going to speak to instead of saying hey we need to unite we need to put our elderly first and we need to put our first responders first we need to think about our health care people who are under the gun and we need to pull together and if we got to be online, we need to be online and not worry about being in person. Yeah, we didn't do that. We didn't do that. No, you know, we we uh, did just the opposite. Mm-hmm. We became the the institution uh, provoking the fights. Yes, and that's the sad part for me, and that's yeah. why I think so many people are disillusioned right now. Or I'll just speak for myself. Or we see this good stuff that happened too and then we hold it up alongside the other and we yeah. wonder what what's going to win out in the end.
0: Well, I think what it, I think maybe this is a way to frame what we're trying to say is there was a lot of anecdotal good things that happened, but the broad trends that emerged were not as hopeful. I think the other thing that happened was we had an opportunity to think about the systems in place in our country, the health system, the uh, safety net system, workers' rights—how much? What? What? What does somebody who works at a grocery store, you know, at checkout, deserve? What does that person deserve who works forty hours a week or who drives a bus? We had an opportunity to see how critical they were. To the functioning of our society, doing this thing that we all need them to do, right? If you and I, the things we offer to the world, stop, it's going to be fine, right? But if these people stop doing those jobs, right? I think we noticed, of course, the nurses and the doctors, God bless them, um, but they get paid well, you know, bus drivers, people work at grocery stores. They don't get paid well. They don't make a living wage most places. And um, I think this was an opportunity to say, you're really valuable and you work hard. And now we we see that and we didn't see it. And we want to make sure that you're taken care of, that you can have a a life of dignity. I don't see that that happened. And I wish it would have. I think the predatory nature of capitalism remains this really gave us an opportunity to see that for what it is and to make some changes and i I, i'm not at all confident that that's going to happen and that's so that's another big structural thing that that disappoints me even in the midst of a lot of anecdotal evidence that there's a lot of good people trying to do good things but there's some structural changes i think we really need in our country and around the world just one last thing before i shift is uh we saw the planet sort of healing a little bit oh, yeah. as everybody slowed down yeah, and stopped using, you know, stopped emitting all these greenhouse gases. And it was another opportunity to say, wow, this planet's resilient. Nature's resilient. If we're willing to just dig in and make some hard sacrifices, and um, obviously we have technological advances that are amazing, we could really, really heal a lot of this planet. And again, I, I'm not convinced that that message sunk in in the way that it could have. And so that, that's disappointing.
1: I remember uh, I'd go to the grocery store, and every time I'd go through the line, and I'd say to the mostly women who were checking me out I mean, checking gotcha. out my I got groceries. You. Yeah. I'd, I'd look them in the eye and I'd say, how are you doing? You doing okay? And almost every time they would tear up and say, it's tough. It's scary. It's scary. It's scary.
0: I mean, remember what it was like at the beginning? How little we understood about how this spread and um, how lethal it was. It, we but were, all, they scared. were. We were they all scared. were all were. And there they were. They yeah. came
1: to work every day partly because they needed to exactly and we didn't and we don't see them as essential workers you know and yet there they were you know and I just think we, again the, the bravery and the just the toughness of some of these folks but also the, I'm telling you every time almost without exception, and I would always ask that and you know I would you believe that mm-hmm. I'd get the same response that look in the eye and they would say, You know, they would say, it's tough. It's tough. It's it's scary. It's scary. My shift's almost over, or I got another five hours, or, you know. So, yeah, these are things. And then when you think about what we value in our faith tradition, we value the servant. That's what we say. That's what we say. We value the last. The last shall be first. These are the last. These are the servants. Mm -hmm. These are the ones Jesus would be saying, hey, come hang out with me. Mm-hmm. You know, and they'd be like, yeah, we're coming because this is a guy who it feels to me anyway, valued them. Yeah. And I mean, if we are to believe that crowds gathered around him, who would they be? Who Who would those crowds of people be from those little villages?
0: Well, the other thing is people at the margins like that, they they know the true nature of our society in a way. That you and I don't yeah, exactly right. They have things to teach us. People on the margins economically, people on the margins because of sexual orientation, people on the margins because of race, um, women on the margins. Um, they children suffer things that you and I never suffer, and they then they know things about the true nature of our society that we just. We don't know. We don't because we don't experience it. So I think that's the other gift that they have, and and we're not uh, receiving that gift from them because we're so often overlooking them, right? right. And this is my—I have this bias in me, right? Because I I love elite knowledge, right? From elite educations, I, I openly admit that, and so I have a tendency. You know, just to think, well, a, a grocery store clerk doesn't have anything to teach me, right? And that's a real shame. And I'm, I'm. it's taken me a while to come around to seeing the arrogance of that. I mean, the arrogance of that is sort of obvious, right? Uh, but also, uh, when you're a heady per- intellectual person like me, you can think that all the knowledge there is to know that's worth anything is up in that stratosphere um it's not down here that gritty stuff right isn't it's just not at the same level and it's it's not not true it's just not true and so uh that's been a lesson that i've been trying to, to learn for myself is um what sources have i totally just overlooked because they're not super educated or sophisticated.
1: So I'll tell you a story. Okay. Comes out of Israel-Palestine. Archaeologist. This is uh really well known. He's the guy who dug out Hezekiah's tunnel. And, and by Hezekiah's tunnel is a tunnel that uh, went underneath the old city. It was to bring water went underneath the city back in the time of King Hezekiah, which would be seventh century. 8th. Uh, 8th century. B.C.E. And uh, it's like 1,700 feet long and it kind of snakes around and it's really kind of a marvel of engineering how they got that done. They wanted to bring uh, water from the kid, uh, from the from the... Uh, Gihon Spring? Gihon, the Yeah, Gihon. Gihon into the city. And, and um, so they, the archaeologists find this. They're digging it out and First, he uses students from the States. And they come, and they dig it out. And the way they have to dig it out is they have to buy buckets. Mm-hmm. And they hand those buckets up. So these guys, they need to take a break every 15, 20 minutes because they fill the buckets with dirt. Then they hand it up, and they have to make a chain, hand it all the way up the chain to get rid of it. And they fill the bucket with dirt. And every 15, 20 minutes, this archaeologist named Ronnie Reich, he'd say, I, they'd have to take a break he said well then they went back to school summer was over they went back to school he hired a bunch of palestinians out of Silwan mm-hmm. to come and do it
0: Silwan's a neighborhood right yep. there
1: Yep, and it's a poor neighborhood yes and these are poor people working class people right and he said lo and behold they come in they fill the buckets a half full only and they can work all day and that's the kind of uh intelligence the kind of thing that people hear these college kids they they don't they can't figure this out but these workers right this is what they do Mm -hmm. they figure stuff like this out how to make it work and you see that all the time with people who work with their hands or do the kind of work that we don't do or wouldn't do or you know Mm -hmm. so
0: absolutely uh, um, I listened to a podcast today, and this was about the nursing home controversy in, in New York State, and that is that they started transferring some COVID-positive patients, because they were running out of room in hospitals, they transferred them to nursing homes, and it led to outbreaks in nursing homes and to a lot of deaths, and it was kind of, it seems to that Governor Cuomo uh, covered it up. Um, Or downplayed it or tried to keep the numbers from getting out. And thankfully it's gotten out. And we'll see what the uh, consequences of that are. But whatever it is, um, it'll be deserved, whatever the consequences are. I was never a huge fan of Governor Cuomo, I must tell you, because he's a super pro-Israel guy. Too much so, unfairly so, I would say. But um, she was talking about her mother. This, This woman was being interviewed on the Daily and her mother died in a nursing home. And she said her biggest fear, her mother's biggest fear was that she was going to die alone. Mm -hmm. And she did Mm -hmm. died alone in this nursing home. That was the thing that she most regretted. And she didn't, her mother wasn't even in the nursing home, wasn't living in a nursing home. She had hurt her leg and was recovering in the nursing home, but got COVID and died there. And um, that's happened a lot. These 500,000, it would be staggering to think how many of them, you know, they might have died with nurses or doctors nearby, but without loved ones. Death is a hard thing for all of us, um, for most of us, I guess I would say, but then to do it alone, that's hard to imagine. Yeah, so it made, made me think of Lent, it made me think of what does Lent, which is the 40 days leading up to... Easter and it includes Good Friday when when Jesus is crucified. you know what does Lent have to teach us possibly about death that we're all going to face? what does it have to offer the world anybody
1: what what have you been thinking about with Lent? My experience with Lent over the years is i think in the church year now the church year you know you have starts with advent and then you have epiphany which is the kind of uh, the light and then you have then you have lent which begins with ash wednesday and ash wednesday is a service that reminds you you're going to die so lent really is meant to be that time when you think about your death. Right. When you think about the fact that one day you are no longer going to draw breath. You're, you're going to die. And it's a sobering season. It's meant to be a very sobering season. And what we turned it into, of course, often is you know, some kind of a self-discipline season. So, oh, I'm going to give up French fries. Mm -hmm. for lent right that's that's not the spirit of lent i'm gonna Mm -hmm. give up alcohol for lent or uh which might not be a bad idea or when i was a smoker i would try to give up smoking for lent i never got it done because i was just never strong enough and then i'd always feel terrible about myself afterwards but Mm -hmm. lent is meant to be this period when we stop we slow down and we think about our mortality. And here's the thing, though. It's meant to be a perspective time. Lent is when I slow down and evaluate how am I living my life as I think about the fact that one day my life will end. Am I living my life in a way that makes good sense, that's that's of value, not in not in the sense of, well, I'm going to do more because that's the exact opposite of what Lent's meant to do. Lent's meant to say, slow down. What's important? Right. And what's not? Yeah. And what you ought to be thinking about is not giving up French fries. You ought to be thinking about, what I, should I give up? Working my butt off so I can be noticed. Yeah. Or um, I can rise above or I can be the winner. Or whatever that. This is one of the things we're to look at and say, that's foolishness. Yep. That's building your house on the sand, right? Relationships. Yeah. That's what you need to be valuing, and and Lent's meant to to help you think about the things you need to let go of. What do I need to let go of so I can live more fully, yeah. more free? More free. More free. In relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, that's the thing that that I've come to realize too late in some way. Well, it's never too late, but, you know, I didn't, it took me a while to realize that that's what Lent's about. It's, yeah. I think it's just a, a tremendously important time in church year.
0: I think uh, it's the best thing we have to offer the world is what can be gained through that season of ours, that we have a religion in which we say the God of the universe is like our ally who understands us and experienced death. That's very bizarre. You know, on the cross, we have God confessing the absence of God if we believe in Jesus as Lord, which Christians do, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's God acknowledging the absence of God. That's absurd, but also profound in the sense that we all experience the absence of God. It might be our primary experience (laughs) rather than the presence of God is my primary experience. I think the absence of God is the primary experience for most of us and the struggle with that, the struggle with mortality, the struggle with what does all this mean? What's the purpose of all this? How do you live well? How do you secure something after death? Right? Not life after death. There's a, there's a cuter way than saying life before death, but That's what matters. Yeah. That's the focus. And that's what Lent is asking us to say. How can you make your life meaningful with the fact of your death looming Um, before you? And um,
1: That's really good.
0: I think that's what it has to offer us. What I did a few years ago with a group, and you participated a few times, um, or maybe a number of times, I don't remember, but we had this group and it, we did what was called atheism for lent which is um this program put on by a, a theologian and philosopher named peter rollins who's really just just this fun unique thinker and in it it's exactly as it sounds you are wrestling with the sort of most poignant pungent critiques of theism for lent so you are digging into atheist critiques of theism for lent it's it it was ironically a very life-giving time for me and i think for everybody in in the group it was a small group and it's interesting i was the facilitator and here are the notes here are just a few of the things The role of the facilitator is not to refute atheist criticisms of religion and God, not to reassure the group that faith can withstand these criticisms. (laughs) To join the group in the process of questioning and self-reflection, experience with the group the possibility that the atheist other can be an instrument of your own transformation. Wow. And uh, I remember reading those to the group, and we just, we laughed with delight. Yeah, that's what I was doing. Do you know what I mean? That just this, like... not to reassure the great the group that faith can withstand these criticisms is just hilarious in a group of people who are church people. Yeah. Just, but in a delightful way. Yeah. Because you're just like, oh,
1: uh, you know. We can do that? We Let's could, do oh, it. Man, if we, could, if we could get the church to have that kind of spirit, though we could get you know if i could be a part of a church that had that kind of spirit man i would i would be someone who couldn't wait to get there on a sunday morning not or saturday night or whenever it was not just because i wanted to see my friends but because i was going to have an opportunity to be liberated to speak out of my heart and my fears and my doubts and in so doing uh, move into a deeper and richer place in my life mm-hmm. as i understand everything including and especially god in the person of jesus i mean that i just that would that, i remember those sessions as um yeah it, it, cuz the title throws people off right
0: it does throw people off and it's meant to right it's meant to be provocative <laughs> of course, of to, to, to what the heck is this right and, and it works in that way i think I think it can turn some people off from considering it, but um, it was, we just had such a, ri- we, got, we got together every week. I don't even know, I don't, we might have missed one week. It was a small group. Ironically, it was a small group of sem- seminary students <laughs> yeah. or p- slash pastors, slash me as a missionary and another um, young woman who was, ha- had gone through the MDiv program with me in the past um uh, some pa- other pastors came here and there it was a tight and it became a tight knit group because it felt like a, it was a super safe place you could say explore anything in that place and um that was a big deal for these folks for me as well um and we really dug into the material and people's I think faith journeys were um, transformed um, in, in some really significant ways. There was a young woman in the group, in fact, who I had met because she had been on a trip to Israel with uh, Israel and Palestine with me. And she had, from from before that trip and then because of that trip and then and and further on, had started to really wrestle with what she thought about God and what she thought about the Bible and what she thought about herself. And it was hard, but I could also tell that she was um, happy to have joined this struggle, like to have had the opportunity, the freedom to do so. Yeah. It ended up being really transformational for her and and she has come out now as non-binary in her gender she and her husband. What does that
1: mean exactly? Explain that for people.
0: So if you hear the title queer, um, one of the ways of identifying as non-binary is to identify as queer, meaning I am a categ- I don't identify with either of the category of male or the category of female fully. Right. So if you have people who use the pronouns, and these are things I'm learning about now. I don't know these things inside and out. Um, so it's different than transgender. Transgender is where you are biologically, say, female, but you feel um, in your body and in your person that you are a male. So then you you trans, you go across your gender to the other gender, and you identify as a, as a male, even though you were bi- biologically born as a female. Um, queer is just this other category where you say, I don't identify with either of those genders you know there are things about both of those genders that I identify with and so that's the place she's at now um she she was married and she is now uh, divorced um which is always hard but uh, she would say it was what needed to happen for for him and for um in this case I'll say it right and for them you see I'm trying to make sure I get my pronouns right And she finished her, see, I'm doing it wrong already. It's hard to get back. They finished their MDiv. And now, uh, they are thinking about doing a PhD in queer studies. And they are very happy, uh, to have gone on this journey. And, I know for a lot of people that will sound like I did something very irresponsible or I was a part of something very irresponsible, but I don't feel that way at all about it. And I know that they don't feel that way about the journey. They feel free. They feel like they're on the path. Not not that they are at the end of a journey, but that they are on the journey they want to be on. That they finally feel like they chose to be their true self. Mm -hmm. And that's a beautiful thing, whatever it ends up being. Um, And they are a beautiful person with beautiful ideas and um, beautiful friendships and all of those things. So that was a transformative experience for everyone in it, but I think it was especially so uh, for this this individual. And so I would, I mean, my invitation to people is you don't have to do Atheism for Lent. You can, it's online. You know, you can look it up, Atheism for Lent, and I think you'll find it challenging. But Lent is a, maybe it could just be a chance to feel free to ask whatever questions you have to explore death don't don't ignore it right i mean we lived through a year in which mm. we should have all really felt mortality in a strong way i don't know if that happened for everyone i'm sure it did not i think christianity has a tendency to leap past Lent to Easter and say, it's all going to be okay. Jesus was raised from the dead, so therefore we're not going to die. So we don't have to, you know, we can dwell on it a little bit, but we all know we're going to heaven afterwards. I think that's not served us well. Um, I don't think it served the world very well. Um, I don't think it has a bright future that way of being Christian and the emphasis on that part of it, this transactional, like, I believe in Jesus, so though I die, I will actually live. Um, And so I would invite people to dig into suffering and death. Um, It might be surprisingly life-giving to do so. How does that strike you? Though still hard.
1: I I would say um, thank you for all of that, what you just did. I mean, for me, it's still new information. And for me, one of the problems with Lent is not so much fear of death, it's fear of failure Mm. or fear of not being accepted or, you know, fear of losing respect because I've been writing this blog and doing these podcasts. And, you know, I mean, Brian McLaren talks about that in his book, Faith After Death. Or faith after doubt, and he says, you know, one of the hardest things about the journey that you and I are on—that he was on too—is yeah. you lose respect of people you love,
0: because
1: mm-hmm. they just—they just cannot handle your questioning, your doubt. They can't handle the fact that you're actually trying to embrace faith and trying to give away fear. All these fears of being wrong, of being. Um, Um, on the wrong side or fear that God's going to be ticked at you because you're questioning or doubting the Bible or uh, any of that. You know, I mean, being able to give that up is so liberating. Yeah. And to say, you mean I can think out not outside the box but outside the Bible? I can actually do that? Right. Yes, in fact, you should because the Holy Spirit's real and alive and working outside the Bible too. Yeah. In all kinds of ways. So, for, uh, as we go forward now in these podcasts through Lent, I, I would hope we can look at some of the themes of Lent that are in this year's scriptures even. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, I would really like to do that because that's kind of my wheelhouse, but... I also would find it interesting to hear your take on some of those.
0: Yeah. And we can do some atheism for Lent. I'll go back and look at some I, of that stuff. I would stuff, love that. I think that brings Bring was, some of that in. Yeah, I what think What are some would, of the lessons that he's yeah. trying to bring out, yeah. Peter Rollins, in that? I, I think you're not giving yourself enough credit. I, I remember we talked about Joe Biden, and I said one of his strengths is that he has evolved and changed. Right? Yeah. People... Too often in politics, we don't give people credit for changing their mind. It's like you're a flip-flopper. Yeah. No, you're a person who evolves over time. That's a good thing. We all should be doing that, yeah. right? And that's what you're doing. Um, and I think you deserve a lot of credit for it because the easier path, but I think less fulfilling, is to stick with what you've known. Stick with what you've been told. Stick with the group. Um,
1: with the herd, Brian with, McLaren uses uh, oh, the yeah, word "herd." Exactly, that's a better even one. Stay stick with, with the herd. herd, which is, you know, I mean, yes, there's, there's, See, there's safety there's, in the herd, right? There is safety in the herd, and and what I, what I would wish for the herd, which which I would consider um, my herd, would be white Christianity, is that we would actually be a safe place for that um, spotted calf you know uh, or whatever you know that that um, that you actually can venture out from the herd and then come back in you know and be safe rather than I can't break out of this circle that you know I can't go over there and check out that funny looking tree over there or whatever you know I'll tell you a quick story and then i know you want to wrap this up i met with a woman this week who has gone through some really tough times i mean baby born premature who's doing well um, but tough tough a daughter who struggles with uh, uh, lots of different things addictions and some mental illness uh, A son-in-law who died of covid and he was in a coma for a long time. And she wanted to talk to me, which is a, a real honor. And we met at church. And uh, she said, Marlon, here's here's the question I have. Where was Bill when he was in the coma? Where was Bill when he was in that coma? Was he there? Was he already gone? Where was Bill when he was in that coma? I said, well, the the problem here is that I think we're asking the wrong question. I think we should be asking a different question and the question we ought to be asking. And my point is not the question I'm going to give us now. That's not my point. My point is, if we're asked the right questions, we can – and I said this to her, you know, if we ask the right question, we might be able – to find an answer. I said, so the question really isn't where was Bill, where was God? And I said, there were nurses there who cared for him. There was family who, while they couldn't be with him, were thinking of him, were remembering him, were caring for him. A wife who, he was a trucker, who flew across the country with another brother-in-law, another family member to be right there in the lobby. So, in a sense, that's where God was. God was in those people that were caring for him. Now, that that's nice, and I I, I think that's true. So mm-hmm. when they say they died alone, I don't know how— Yes, I understand the meaning yeah. of that, but I also understand that they didn't, because I've, I've been in the last three years, four years, as you know, I've had two extended hospital stays for some serious stuff. Mm-hmm. And those nurses— hmm Yeah. My gosh. And, I mean, female, male, they were amazing to me. They were amazing to me, the yeah. way they treated me. They loved on me, and they did that with everybody. It wasn't just about me. They did it with everybody. Yeah. The gal who cleaned my room was Polish, and one day she said, Can I sing you a Polish song? Yeah. I mean... Where was God? I mean, for me, that's that's the answer. But the point I want to make is in Lent, what we need, and through this whole Christian journey, Josh, I'm trying to figure out, not what are the answers, right? what are the right questions? Yeah. What questions should we be asking? Mm-hmm. Because if we get the questions right, yeah. we can finally start finding some answers that may, may be more fulfilling to us. And so I, as we travel through Lent, you know, I know we're going to want to talk again. Let, let's ask the right questions about the cross. Mm-hmm. Let's ask the, the right questions about Thursday in the garden. Yeah. Let's ask the right questions about Judas. You know, what are the right questions? Let's see if we can find the right questions. Yep. That, that's where I would like to see us go during Lent.
0: Hey, thanks so much for sticking with us. See you next week.